Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. The rest of you, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. I've been talking a lot the past few weeks about my previous jobs. And so in the late 90s, I had a job. And this was when Dawn was pregnant with our oldest son, Aiden. And it was a job that was, I, I was a marketing representative in kind of the grocery store industry. And it required me to travel a lot. And so I had just started this job in the the headquarters were in Chicago. So I went to Chicago, and this job had a lot of 20-somethings in it. And so we went to orientation, and before, actually before we went to orientation, we were to meet at this bar. So I went to this bar where all these 20-somethings were, and I was pretty shocked because they were getting drunk, and they were being flirtatious, and they were using really foul language. And I thought, this is a, a company party? This is a, this is a weird orientation. So I was the new guy, so I just kind of got real silent. And then one of the, the girls got real flirtatious with me, and she started like coming on to me and I, I held up my wedding ring and I said you know what I'm really thankful for my wife who's at home expecting our first child and I was try, trying to get her to get the hint well that next day it was time to actually do the orientation and one of the boisterous ladies one of the girls that was very um, raucous she was my trainer and she said, you were kind of really quiet last night, and you seemed to be a little uncomfortable last night. And I said, yeah, as a matter of fact, I was pretty uncomfortable last night. I said, let me just tell you a little bit about who I am. I said, I'm a Christian. I don't really engage in this type of stuff. I'm happily married, and I, I try to live my life for the Lord. And then when I said that, her demeanor totally changed. She got really, really embarrassed, and she said, you know what? She says, I'm kind of a Christian, too. I grew up in a Baptist church in Arkansas. I went to youth group. I went to mission trip. I did all these things as a youth. But now, in my 20s, I just find it so hard to say no to temptation. As a matter of fact, I'm actually kind of embarrassed to be a Christian. And I struggle, and I struggle. And she began to kind of unpack with me the things in her life and she said, I really admire what you did last night. She's like, I don't know if I would have had the strength to say no to all of the temptations that were going on. I just struggle to be a Christian. Now, many of you have probably had those times in your life when you felt weak. You couldn't say no to temptation. You gave in to peer pressure. You went with the crowd because it was easier than standing out and, and being strong in your faith. And maybe even there was those times where you were embarrassed to be a Christian because it wasn't popular. We've all had those, those moments of darkness where we rushed headlong into sin and we knew full well that it was rebellion against God. Now why do I bring up temptation moments of weakness, being embarrassed about being a Christian. Well, today in our passage of Scripture, we're going to see two responses to Jesus, two devastating responses. We're going to see the betrayal by Judas and the denial three times by Peter. So if you've got your Bible with you, let's 
look at Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 47. Luke chapter 22, verse 47. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and a man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servants of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers and the temple and the elders who had come out against him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. We're going to continue on through this passage of Scripture, but for this morning I want us to see three truths that emerge from this passage of Scripture. And here's the first thing we see. The first thing we see is the temporary hour of darkness. Now why do I call it the temporary hour of darkness? As we will see, this is a temporary and fixed time that God has ordained for the powers of darkness to have limited success against Jesus. It's a dark hour. John's Gospel gives us a little bit more detail about Judas. But right after the Lord's Supper, when they met there together, Judas leaves. And John says it this way about Judas on his way to go betray Jesus. In John 13, 29-30, some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. And that's not just a little incidental detail that John gives us. It was night. This is a way of symbolically foreshadowing what's going on in Judas's heart. It was night. It was dark. He had sunk into Darkness. How is hell described? Hell is described as a place of outer darkness. And so Judas is in spiritual darkness. And he comes to betray Jesus with a kiss. Now this is a dagger in the soul. In the ancient times, men would oftentimes greet each other with a kiss. You've probably seen those movies with the Italian guys or the Middle Eastern guys where they, they kiss on each cheek. It, it was a common way to greet one another. But this is a demonic act of betrayal where Jesus comes up to kiss Judas. I mean, Judas comes up to kiss Jesus on the cheek. Now, Judas could have shaken Jesus' hand. He could have pointed at him. But no, he comes up with this intimate act of friendship and loyalty this perverted act of friendship and loyalty by kissing Jesus in betrayal and notice what Jesus says to Judas he calls him on it he says there in verse 48 Jesus said to him Judas would you betray the son of man with a kiss it's as if Jesus is saying Judas are you really doing this 
Are you literally going to do this? Are, are, are you sunk so much into darkness? Are you so much the son of perdition? Or are you so much embroiled in satanic activity that you're really about to do this? You're going to betray me, the son of man, with a kiss. And then Peter being Peter, John's gospel tells us it's Peter is the one that draws the sword. Peter draws the sword, cuts off the ear of the servant. Now the servant's name is Malchus. We'll find that out from John's gospel. And so we often wonder, why does Peter get all brash and bold? He, he's ready to go, right? He wields the sword and he cuts off the ear. He's got this false bravado. He's looking courageous before these Roman soldiers. In just a few moments, a little girl's going to frighten him to where he's going to deny Jesus. But right here, he's willing to bear his sword. And it doesn't really accomplish much. He just cuts off the ear of the servant. And Jesus heals that man but notice the wording that Jesus uses there Luke is the only one of the gospel writers that has this phrase verse 53 when I was with you day after day in the temple you did not lay hands on me but this is your hour your hour and the power of darkness now when Jesus says this is your hour He's not saying it's a literal 60 minutes that you've, that you've got here. This is a, a symbolic way of saying this is God's preordained, predestined time for you, Satan, to have control. To have a moment, a limited moment, a temporary moment of success. Now go back to chapter 22, verse 3. What did we already see happen? So go back at the very beginning. I know chapter 22 is a long chapter. We've been in this for a few weeks now. But go back to verse 3. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. Satan had already entered into Judas to do this treacherous act of darkness. It's the hour of darkness. What does Paul tell us in Ephesians 6.12? We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is the fixed hour of darkness. God's predestined, preordained time to give Satan through Judas and the Roman soldiers and all those that are conspiring against Jesus a limited temporary moment where they can reign. But it's still under God's sovereign purview. Because look at Luke twenty two twenty two. Go back and look at verse 22. Again, in chapter 22. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he's betrayed. This is going exactly as God had planned it, as God has determined it. So Jesus is never a victim of fate. Jesus is not powerless. Jesus is here under God's sovereign purview where God is limiting Satan in the power of darkness for this moment of betrayal. But Jesus is not powerless. He voluntarily lays his life down. But this betrayal, this arrest, this, this moment of darkness is under God's sovereign plan. The hour has now come. Listen to what J.C. Ryle says about this. He says, Wicked men 
nor a malicious devil could, go a hair's, could not go a hair's breadth beyond the limit appointed by God or triumph over the Son of God a minute beyond the time decreed by the eternal council. They didn't know it, but the Lord allowed them to take him prisoner because God permitted them a little season of power. It's a little temporary season of power that God has ordained the powers of darkness to have. And this is the unfolding of God's plan. Satan had entered Judas. Judas is betraying Jesus with a kiss. It's this hour of darkness. And in this hour of darkness, there's a lot of ironies. A lot of ironies emerge. What does Jesus say to them when they come to arrest him? Notice he says there in verse 52, Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders who had come out against him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? That word robber in the original language means a terrorist, an insurrectionist, a violent criminal. Have you come against me? Am I a violent criminal? Am I a terrorist? Am I an insurrectionist? That's an irony. And then what's the other irony? They come at night. Jesus said, you could have come at any time. You could have come in the middle of the day. You could have arrested me in the middle of the day with all these people watching, but you come at night in secret. And then the other irony is this. Jesus could have sovereignly overpowered these Roman soldiers with just one word or his breath or anything. He's powerful. But he allows this to happen because it's God's ordained plan. It's a temporary hour. It's a limited time of darkness where Satan, through Judas, is going to attack, arrest, try to overthrow Jesus. And Jesus allows it to happen because he needs to be arrested in order to be tried, in order to be crucified. But he's not a victim. In any step of the way, he's sovereignly in control. But this is the hour of darkness. This is God's temporary moment where he's allowing Satan to run rampant to bring about God's predestined plan for Jesus to die on the cross. So the first thing we see is this temporary hour of darkness. A limited time that God gives to the powers of darkness to attack Jesus. Let's keep reading and find out what happens next. That's the betrayal. The hour of darkness where Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss. Let's continue reading in verse 54. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. When they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You are also one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he said to him, before the rooster crows, today you will deny me three times. 
And he went out and wept bitterly. We saw the temporary hour of darkness. The second thing we see is the tragic hour of denial. This is a tragic sequence of weaknesses where Peter denies Jesus three times. Now in verse 57, when Peter denied it, in the original language it's worded very quickly, very curt, very decisive, that Peter doesn't hesitate, I'm denying it. The second time, verse 58, Peter denies it. He says, I'm not one of these men. I don't want to identify as a follower of Jesus. John's gospel puts it this way in John 18, 25. Now, Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, you're also not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it. I'm not. I'm not a disciple. I'm not a follower. I don't know the man. And then, verse 60, Peter flat out denies. Peter said, man, I do not know what you're talking about. I have no idea what you're talking about. Now, Mark's gospel is a little bit more graphic. We don't know exactly what Peter said, but Mark 14, 71, he began to invoke a curse on himself and swear, I do not know the man of whom you speak. Peter uses some colorful language in the third denial. And then, right as he says, I don't know what you're talking about, blankety, blankety, blank. I don't know what Peter said. But he cursed the rooster crows. Probably about between 1 and 3 o'clock in the morning. And you have to sit back and you have to wonder, Peter, why'd you do it? Why were you so confident just hours before? Remember, Peter was so confident. Jesus, I will follow you to death. I'm willing to be arrested. He pulled that sword and cut that ear off. He was so sure of himself. He was so confident. And now, in a moment of weakness, he denies Jesus not once, but three times. And then goes out and weeps bitterly. This tragic sequence of sin shows us how to say no to temptation. Or how not to say no to temptation. Titus 2, 11-12 says this, For the grace... Of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce or to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. God's grace is there to help us say no to temptation. But Peter did not say no to temptation. He gave in. In a dark hour of weakness, Now, there's some steps or some sequences here that Peter goes through in this denial. And it's really illustrative to help us understand how to say no to temptation. So what I want to do is I want to take us on a journey here. How do you say no to temptation? When temptation comes, how do you battle it? How do you say no? How do you handle temptation? Well, let's just look at some of these things in the life of Peter and what the rest of the Scripture says speaks about well first of all beware of overconfidence in your ability to withstand temptation 
Beware of this overconfidence. I'm never going to be tempted. I'm never going to give in. I'm overconfident. I, I can handle it. Peter was overconfident. He didn't ever think he'd be faced with this temptation. He talked a great game, but in the hour of temptation, he gave in. Listen to some of these Proverbs. Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It's not going to happen to me. I'm above it all. Proverbs 28, 26. Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. Or how about 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Don't be so overconfident. Realize that you're not as strong as you think you are. Why? Because the world, the flesh, and the devil are going to come at you in full force. The devil wants you to fall. Your flesh is weak. The world's coming at you. And so the moment that you think, I'm good, I'm never going to fall, I'm never going to be tempted, I can handle it, is the moment that you're overconfident and you need to be very aware of overconfidence. Peter was overconfident. I will follow you to the death, Jesus. I'll stand up and be arrested with you. I'll never fall. So that's the first. Second, and this is what Jesus tells his disciples that we looked at last week. Second, be watchful and pray so that you don't fall into temptation. Be watchful for it and pray. In other words, guard your heart. Proverbs 4, 23-27. Keep your heart or guard your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. Put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet and all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. Guard your heart. Know your heart. In other words, know those areas of weakness that you're easily susceptible to, that your heart is prone to be drawn into sin. Guard your heart. Know your heart. Be familiar with your heart because the heart is where it all starts. The battle starts in the heart and in the mind. James says it this way in James 1, 13-14. Let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. You're lured and enticed by your own desire. You see, you and I have desires deep down in our hearts that are lurking there that we're oftentimes not even familiar with, don't even know they're there. And those desires, when those temptations come, will lead you to commit sin if you're not careful in guarding your heart. Ask the Lord to search your heart. Psalm, 120, or Psalm 139, 23-24, Search me, O God, know my heart. 
Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Ask the Lord to search your heart, to to be familiar with your heart. Lord, what areas of temptation am I susceptible to? Where's my heart drawn to? What captivates my heart? How am I lured away? Lord, please protect me. Lord, please guard my heart. Help me to know the weaknesses in my heart. And one of the primary ways you guard your heart is you fill it with God's word. It was read earlier during our time of prayer. Psalm 119, 9 through 11. How can a young man, young woman, old man, old woman, I don't care what age you are, how can a person, now it talks about young men because young men are more susceptible to sin, per se, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. What did Jesus say to his disciples right before this? Just look at just a few verses earlier. Matthew's gospel says it this way. Matthew 26, 41. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. The flesh is weak. So when that temptation comes and and you meet it head on, do not negotiate with that temptation. Don't negotiate with it. Avoid it. Pray, watch, guard your heart, flee, have your mind focused on Jesus and the cross, be watchful. Okay, the third thing that we see in Peter about how to say no, or how to say, or how not to say no. Third, don't be paralyzed by indecision, but stand with Christ. Don't be paralyzed by indecision, but stand with Christ. Now, remember, Peter was so confident with his words of devotion, wasn't he? I will follow you to the death, Jesus. I'm willing to be arrested with you, Jesus. I'm all there. And then he was bold with his actions. He chopped off the ear in front of the Roman soldiers. But then when Jesus was arrested, what happened? Let me ask you what the Bible, does the Bible say Peter stood up and says, Arrest me too because I'm his number one dude. And wherever he goes, I'm going. So take me with him. Does Peter ever say that? No, he never does say that. Notice what verse 54 says. What does verse 54 tell us? When they had kindled a fire, I'm sorry, verse, they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. We don't know how far back Peter was, but the Greek text makes it sound like it's kind of far back. It's a long way away. He wasn't willing to stand with Christ. He was paralyzed by indecision. I'm going I'm to stand back. I'm going to hold back. I'm not going to stand with Jesus. And there's an interesting Greek word that's used in verse 57. When you look at verse 57, when the little girl, and we don't know how old she is, Verse 57, I'm sorry. He says, denying it, he denied it saying, woman, I do not know him. Now there's two Greek words for know. I'm not going to bore you with that, but the, the, the first one's the word gnosko. That means to have intimate experiential knowledge. That's not the word Peter uses. There's another Greek word for know, which is more about just information, kind of a generic word. That's the word Peter uses. 
As this if Peter's saying, I have, no, I have no, no personal knowledge of this man. I have no intimate knowledge of this man. I don't know him. I don't know him in any way at all. That's a bold-faced lie. Peter was one of the closest ones to Jesus. He knew him intimately, personally. You see, Peter was indecisive. I don't want to stand with Jesus. I'm paralyzed by indecision. When it comes to standing and strong, you've got to make a decision. You can't waver. You can't vacillate. You've got to stand for truth. You've got to stand with Christ in those moments of temptation. Fourth, the text doesn't necessarily tell us this, but it's one thing that we need to think about when we're dealing with temptation, and that is think deeply about the consequences of giving in to that temptation. What's the fallout? What are the consequences? What would happen if you fell into that temptation? How would your witness be affected? How would your testimony be affected? Who's going to be impacted? What trail of bodies are you going to leave behind you? What hurt are you going to bring if you give in to this temptation? Galatians 6, 7-8 Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from flesh reap corruption but the one who sows to the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. You reap what you sow. And here's the fifth thing. Peter was overwhelmed with fear, and he did not pray in the moment of temptation. Here's the bottom line. Peter was afraid. He was fearful. It was peer pressure. He had the girl looking at him he had the crowd looking at him he was at a distance he was hiding out there trying to disguise they, they, they knew he was one of the followers because of his accent the Galilean accent he was afraid and instead of asking the Lord for help in that moment he gave in now is the Lord able to help us in moments of weakness absolutely 1 Corinthians 10 13 no temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man God is faithful he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it God will give you the way of escape God will help you in that moment when you cry out to him Psalm 25 21 may integrity and uprightness preserve me for I wait for you I wait for you, Lord. Help me to be, to be a man of integrity. Help, help me in this moment of temptation. I'm waiting for your help. Hebrews 2.18, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he can help those who are being tempted. He can help us in those moments. And then 2 Corinthians 12.9, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. In those moments of weakness, God can help you. God is there to get you out of it, but you've got to cry out to him. You've got to ask for help. You've got to guard your heart. You've got to be dependent. Now, here's a warning. If you willfully and intentionally cross the line and get into that point of sin and you expect God just to bail you out, that may be a little presumptuous. 
Now, I'm not saying God won't help you, but there is a progression here where you guard your heart. You are watchful. You are prayerful. You know your areas of weakness. You are dependent. And in those moments, you trust in the Lord to help you. You don't just kind of walk headlong and say, God, bail me out. So this is a dark hour. It's a temporary hour of darkness where Judas, under the influence of Satan and the powers of darkness, are betraying Jesus with a kiss. But it's also an hour of darkness because Peter is denying Jesus three times. But there is hope in this passage of Scripture. You may not see it, but I want to show it to you. Here's the third thing we see in this passage of Scripture. We see the tremendous hope of deliverance. The tremendous hope of deliverance. What happened after the rooster crowed and Peter sinned? Look at verse 61. Did you catch it? The Lord turned and looked at Peter. Don't know all the details of this, but I'm assuming that Jesus was probably being led to one room to another in the, in, the, in the house of Caiaphas, the high priest, and maybe he looks down the courtyard and his eyes catch Peter's eyes. And the way it's worded in the original language is, this is an intense look. It's a laser-sharp look where Jesus makes eye contact with Peter and looks at him. He sees him. It's a look of conviction but it's also a look of love. One of the earliest Christian paintings there is in the world is called the Christ Pantocrator. That's Greek or Latin for Christ the Lord Almighty. It's on display in St. Catherine's Monastery in Mount Sinai. There's a monastery at the base of Mount Sinai in Egypt. It's about from the 500s. It's a painting of Jesus. It's one of the earliest paintings of Jesus. And here's why, what's so interesting about it. Jesus has two eyes, obviously, but one eye, the right eye, is stern. It's an eye of judgment and conviction. And the left eye is an eye of weeping and tears and mercy. Now, Luke doesn't tell us exactly how Jesus looked at Peter, only that it was an intense look, but it was a look of conviction. It was a convicting gaze in Peter to say, Peter, what you've done is wrong. It's a convicting look. But I have to believe it's also a compassionate look. We don't know all the details, but I'm assuming that Jesus looked at Peter with that look of what you've done is wrong, Peter, but at the same time, I have to imagine Jesus saying with his eyes, Peter, I know what you've done is wrong, but I love you, and I'm going to forgive you, and you're going to repent, and I'm going to restore you. So it's a look of sternness, Peter, I can't believe you did it, but at the same time, it's a look of love, Peter, this is not the end of you. I'm your Savior. I love you. It's a moment of weakness, but I'm going to restore you. Now, the text doesn't tell us that, but I have to imagine that look. You just imagine with your sanctified imaginations what happened when Jesus looks at Peter, Peter looks at Jesus. What's going on in that moment? And how does Peter respond? He went out and wept bitterly. The violent wailing. 
weeping profusely at uncontrollable, outlandish sorrow. You see, Peter repented with godly sorrow. How do we know that Peter repented with godly sorrow? Because Jesus already told him he would. Go back and look at verse 31. We've already seen this. Remember, Jesus already told Peter what was going to happen. So go back and look at verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, and remember that word means repented, when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you do not know me. When you turn again, Peter. Peter, when you repent. Listen again to the words of J.C. Ryle. Remorse can make a man miserable like Judas Iscariot, but it can do no more. It does not lead him to God. Repentance makes a man's heart soft and his conscience tender. The fall of a true Christian always ends in deep contrition, self-abasement, and transformation of life. We've seen two men this morning, and there is a stark difference between Judas and Peter. Judas willfully betrayed Jesus, and he never repented. He had remorse, but no true repentance. Listen to what Matthew's gospel tells us about Judas. In Matthew 27, 3-5, Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and hanged himself. You see, Judas' sin was willful. It was demonic. And it ended with suicide, with no repentance. On the other hand, Peter did deny his Lord and Savior. But it wasn't because Peter didn't love Jesus. It wasn't because Peter didn't want to serve Jesus. It was because Peter fell into a moment of weakness. It was a moment of weakness. It wasn't a willful, satanic rebellion. It was a moment of weakness. And remember that Jesus prayed for Peter that his faith would not fail and that he would not fall beyond the grasp of Christ. And Peter is overcome with godly sorrow. Not remorse, but true repentance. Listen to how Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians 7.10. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces Here's the bottom line. Jesus forgives us freely and powerfully when we repent. His compassion is more powerful than our weakness. His grace is more amazing than our sin. And that's not an excuse for you to go out and sin, but it's just a promise that when you fail and you will, His grace is sufficient to forgive you. Listen to some of these scriptures about the grace of our great Savior. Isaiah 1.18, Come now, 
Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they're red as crimson, they shall be like wool. Peter's sin was red as crimson. But Jesus forgave him and made him white as snow. Isaiah 45, 22. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Turn to me. Repent and believe all the ends of the earth. Isaiah 55, 6-7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon his name while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. I love this passage in Isaiah. When you turn to the Lord, when you forsake your ways, the Lord forgives and he abundantly pardons with his compassion. When we turn in repentance, when we turn in that godly sorrow to the Lord, he forgives us and he pardons us because he loves us. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness you have moments of weakness where you fall into temptation and if you're a true believer in Jesus you're you're stricken to the heart with grief godly grief and you repent we should mourn our sin we should own up to our sin we confess our sin and then Jesus forgives us of that sin So Peter's a great example here. Peter's a great example for us to follow in the sense that we don't want to do what he did. He he fell into sin. It was a moment of weakness. He denied Jesus three times. He failed miserably. But he's also a great example to show us that's not the end. He repented and was restored. And Jesus forgave him and brought him back. In the hour of darkness, in the hour of denial, Jesus shines brighter with the hope of deliverance. What has he done for us? Colossians 1, 13-14. He's delivered us from where? The domain of darkness. And transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. In times of temptation, let us remember our Savior. What has He done? He's delivered us from darkness. He's forgiven us all of our sins. You see, here's the biggest problem with temptation. Listen to Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in yourself with all your sinful heart and always lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, follow your own heart, and you'll go down a crooked path. Is that what the Bible says? No. You're like, what passage is he reading? Let me read Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Are you like Peter, where you're overconfident? You're trusting in your ability to withstand. You don't know that sin that's lurking deep in your heart. You're not watchful. You don't put God's word in your heart. You don't think about the consequences of sin. And in a moment of weakness, you give in to fear. And you're like Peter, 
you run and hide and you deny Jesus and you're intimidated and you fall into sin. Are you trusting in your own ability or are you trusting in Christ? Let's trust in Jesus who died on the cross for our sins not so that we could continue in a life of sin, but that we would live lives that honor and please and glorify Him. And we trust Him. And we trust Him that when we are weak, He is strong. And in those moments of temptation, we look to Him. We cry out to Him. We submit to Him. So what I'm asking us to do today is to realize there's hope and deliverance. But it it means that we would all humbly submit ourselves before our great Savior. And we walk out of this place saying, you know what? When I walk out of this place, I'm going to face temptation. My own flesh is going to boil up and I'm going to be faced with temptation. The devil's going to come at me. The world's going to come at me. I'm going to face temptation. But I'm going to face temptation not in my own power. I'm not going to trust in myself. I'm going to trust the Lord in all my ways. I'm not going to lean on my own understanding. I'm going to acknowledge him, and he will make straight my path. So as we leave this place today, we can face temptation, not because we're so powerful. We're actually very weak, but we can face temptation because Jesus can deliver us. Jesus can forgive us. Jesus gives us the power. Jesus gives us the hope. Jesus is the light that shines in our darkness, and we just need to trust him to keep our paths straight. So let me ask you to bow your heads this morning and let's spend some time in prayer. And maybe there's a temptation that you're struggling with right now that you just need the Lord to give you help. Or maybe you've fallen into a temptation and you are stricken with grief. Would you go before Jesus and confess your sins to Him? Whatever you need to do during this time, Would you spend it going before your Savior in prayer and devotion, asking for help, and he's ever ready to give it to you because he loves you so much. As we come before you this morning, we want to claim this promise or this direction, or this teaching in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, that we want to trust you, Lord, with all of our hearts. We don't want to lean on our own understanding, but in all of our ways, we want to acknowledge you. And we know that when we do that, you'll make straight our paths. So, Lord, when our hearts are fearful, when our hearts are weak, when our hearts are tempted... Instead of trusting in ourselves and in our ability or giving in to that temptation or, or, or negotiating with that temptation or thinking about how we could just dive headlong into that, help us to trust in you. Lord, it's, it's ultimately a matter of trust. Help our hearts to be relying upon you, crying out to you. And you're ever present to help us in that moment of temptation. When we're weak, you're strong. Your grace is sufficient. Lord, I just pray, Lord, as we leave this place, that we would be people that walk in the truth, walk in righteousness. Lord, I particularly pray for our teenagers, our high school 
middle school, maybe, Lord, even maybe even college students that are in here, Lord, that are, are faced with just insurmountable temptation in this world. And sometimes we as parents and grandparents don't quite understand the temptations they're faced with, Lord, but we know that there are some major temptations through social media, through school, through friends. Lord, I just want to pray a special prayer for our, our teenagers that you would just give them power upon power to say no. That they would not deviate, they would not vacillate, they would not be paralyzed by indecision, but Lord, they would stand with Jesus. Even when that means that they may be lonely, they would stand with Christ above all. Lord, help us as parents and grandparents and friends and, and church family to surround them and encourage them. Let them know that we love them and that we want them to stand strong. Lord, I know all of us deal with temptation, but I'm, just, I'm particularly just struck this morning with our teenagers, our youth that need, need strength, Lord. Help us to be the people you've called us to be. We are weak, but you are strong. Your grace is sufficient. And may we trust in you this week, Jesus, and not lean on our own understanding, but in all our ways acknowledge you, and you'll make straight our paths. And we ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Amen. If you're here this morning.